Hello, this is Kat. And only Kat. It's just me. This is Feminine Chaos. I'm here all by myself. Very lonely, very alone. This is the dawn of a new and temporary era in which I'm holding down the fort by myself, but because I can only create so much chaos alone, I am having a series of guests, and today I'll be joined for this conversation by Lee Stein. Lee is a friend of the pod, a friend of mine, and most importantly, a poet, which is going to be extremely useful for reasons that will shortly become clear. She's the author of the novel Self-Care, as well as a brand new poetry collection titled What to Miss One, which is available now from Soft Skull Press. This is a shortened version of this interview. A longer, unedited, more scandalous version is available now on Patreon for our subscribers. If you join us at the $5 level on Patreon, you'll receive access to two exclusive episodes per month, early access to all our public episodes, or as in this case, a longer, uncut version of episodes that appear publicly. If you want to join us on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash feminine chaos. Either way, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And here we go. Lee Stein, welcome to Feminine Chaos. Thanks, Kat. I'm so excited to have you here because We've just had a very timely poetry scandal, and I'm not a poet, but I know you and you are one. So really happy to be able to get you on to kind of walk me and our audience through this and, uh, you know, maybe dish some dirt about the more sordid realities of what it's like to be a contemporary poet navigating that landscape. And this is a this is a fun scandal because I I don't think anyone was harmed in the making of this scandal. I guess that's the question. You know, we have a lot of people very outraged by a poem, but are they really upset or are they kind of excited about the right. opportunity to get mad about it? Um, so before we before we go into the discussion of this poem, we should talk about what it actually is. So uh, I guess it was late last week. Um, mm-hmm. the poetry, is it like poetry Twitter, would you say? Yes, poetry Twitter, but really it, it really went beyond the borders of poetry Twitter and just into the, uh, I guess the literary discourse of Twitter generally. Okay. So starting in, you know, in poetry Twitter and then spreading like a wildfire out into the broader discourse as a poem published in, I guess, a poetry journal or a magazine. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, so it's called a- 3AM Magazine. Like, I remember reading 3AM Magazine in, like, 2008. Like, this has been around for a long time, but it's not, like, a career goal to get published in 3AM Magazine. I would say it's, like, a pretty small indie online pub. Okay. All right. Good to know. Yeah, this is outside of my wheelhouse. However, um, I'm entertained by the banner, the magazine's like motto. Uh, if you go to the website, if you go to the, the, the URL where this poem initially existed, it says 3AM magazine, whatever it is, we're against it. And apparently they were so against this poem that it's been retracted, unpublished from the website, because if you go there now, it says, Oops, sorry, we couldn't find that file. And uh, there's no explanation as to, you know, why this poem is gone. This poem was previously, thank you, Web Archive, for saving it, um, titled Gia Tolentino. 
and it's a poem <laughs> by a man named Nicholas Rom, Rom, Roms, Roms, Rombies. I don't know. Haven't heard it said out loud. So it's R-O-M-B-E-S. Um, and it's a poem nominally about the writer Gia Tolentino, who's been a topic of conversation on Feminine Chaos previously because she's just super cool and aspirational and everybody who writes uh, as a millennial kind of wants to be her. It's also about a, a sort of an unbridled expression of lust. It's like fan fiction. Ooh, fan verse, fan poetry. Yeah, fan verse. Um, so I'm going to do my best, or maybe, I don't know, or maybe you should. To I would love to read the first two stanzas. Could I do that? Yes, please. read. <laughs> so here, a dramatic reading by Lee Stein of the poem Gia Tolentino <laughs> by Nicholas, R-O-M-B-E-S, unpronounceable last name. Okay. Do it, Lee. Take us away. I want to ask Gia Tolentino to ask me to ask her to ask me to let me take conditionally her hand the soft pink palm of it a gentle push against my wonder bread face <laughs> i can't even get through it without laughing it's just so like why is this poem so bad first of all the line breaks are very arbitrary and dramatic um, it's very like amateurish. It's it's the kind of poetry you write in high school when you have like very big feelings and you're trying to translate those feelings into art. So all you do is like put the line break where you think it makes like a dramatic pause. <laughs> but also the image of just like her hand, the soft pink palm of it. Okay, that's redundant. Against my wonder bread face. Like he was trying to come up with a creative way to say that he's a he has, he has a white face. Yeah, I mean, that's evocative, but I think in all of the wrong ways. And then I, I think, I don't know, I want to I want to mention the last stanza. Or you should read the stanzas. last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should just, it's not really a very long poem. I'm just going to pick up where you left off just okay. so we can, you know, we can discuss this in full. So yes, please. I, I'm not going to do as good a job of reading this as you. Uh, Gia. I've deleted all my bygones and ghosted each and every version of myself, a kingdom I don't believe in anymore. 27 days in nickel freezing northern Michigan beneath those denuded tamaracks in the evil Red Lodge. I've got my elk herds, my strows, my European black forests. Oh, Gia, <laughs> I want to come back new into this eely wet slippery world with you i have to go take a shower uh i'll you know, be right he back. was really he was missing like a very erotic line break if he had broken the line after come it would have been like i want to come back new but instead yeah. he wrote i want to come back so what's interesting i mean let's just like deep dive here instead of breaking the line there he did come back which makes it sound like what he wants is to like go back into the womb and then be <laughs> reborn um you know i don't know eely wet and slippery that that's disgusting so what you're saying is he wants to be gia's twin in utero and then they're born together yeah, maybe she, you know, she puts her her little pink hand against his wonder bread face and, you know, and pulls him down out of this sort of like 
collective consciousness vagina and and into the world. But the world itself is eely wet and slippery. Why? Um, is it because is it because this is a bad poem? <laughs> this is a very bad poem, and that's what makes it such a fun controversy. Okay, so Lee, can you ex- can you explain to I mean to me primarily, but also to those who are listening to us, why the controversy? So I don't think we would be talking about this poem at all if it didn't have the title Gia Tolentino. Um, so because she's so popular and she's so famous, it was a way for us to all talk about her again. I think she's someone that we love talking about online. So this brought her back into our into our consciousness and allowed us to talk about her and allowed us to ask the question, you know, is this is this harming Gia? And she commented on Instagram. I wish this magazine a less embarrassing strategy to get people to read it, and I wish this writer the absolute baseline level of internal peace of which he seems to be in need. Oh, it's God. like such a clapback. It's like, and she's such a she's such a queen bee. Um, I was going to say it's very like, why are you so obsessed with me? Right. Yeah. Right. So I was thinking, like, would we be talking about this poem if it was called like Lauren Euler? I think we would. There's just like certain figures that whenever people write about them, we're, we we pounce. Yes, you know it's interesting because uh, Gia and and Lauren also to a certain extent, but but really more Gia occupy this aspirational position of being like everybody wants to be them, but also to be their best friend. The idea of being in pro- like friendly proximity to her is very seductive, which is why anytime somebody writes anything either that's perceived as creepy the way this is or critical the way um, this other previous, I can't remember if it was actually a reported piece. I think it was about um, the role that her family played in this uh, human trafficking case um, where it seemed like maybe they had done some, some fairly shady things to Filipino teachers, I'm mm-hmm. probably botching this, but, um, you know, this was sort of the broad strokes, you know, that they were, they were getting teachers to come to the U.S. with uh, promises that they would be employed or taken care of. And then, um, you know, these, these people who, you know, were coming to the U.S. from the Philippines were, were being very broadly exploited. So, uh, and that was considered unacceptable, you know, to, to bring up this story to suggest that, uh, Gia, it's Tolentino, not Tolentino. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, either way, um, you know, to suggest that like there was any reason to be critical of her in connection to it, people were like, this is an affront. How dare, basically. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking too that it's like she's like um, she's like the, the, the cool girl crush. Like if this poem was about Taylor Swift, also we wouldn't be talking about it. Like if it was like a poem about having a crush on Taylor Swift, it would just be so – it would be such a com- – like just it would be so common – that it would be boring, but because she's so, she's a New Yorker staff writer. Oh, there was, um, I think Andy, what's her name? Andy from Bitch Magazine. Andrea, oh God, what is her name? I'm totally Seisler? blanking. Yes, thank you. She tweeted something like, not going to lie, I would love to read a collection of erotic poems written about every New Yorker staff writer ever, <laughs> which is hilarious. So there's something, it's it's definitely like an in-group thing. Like this isn't, this isn't about a huge celebrity. She's only a celebrity within this tiny sphere of people. Like I'm I'm like the, the youngest person on the planet that still reads The New Yorker because when I read The New Yorker, I see 
advertisements for adult diapers. Well, who, who's to say that those are being worn by people who genuinely need them and not, you know, like young literary folks who wear them for, um, you know, kinkier reasons? <laughs> <laughs> who's to say, Kat? I'm, I'm being maximally empathetic right now. Um, so yeah, this became the, a point of a great deal of discussion. And yeah, it, so it appears that, that somewhere amid the backlash, the magazine decided to take this down. Um, do you have any thoughts about why they would do this? Could, could they just not take the heat? Were they just not interested in having it talked about anymore? I think a common experience on the internet is like you're you're excited for people to talk about something. You put something out there and then the chatter begins and at first it's really exciting and then you're like and then the pushback happens. And so it's not just chatter, it's criticism and people, you know, claiming that Gia was harmed by this poem or that it's offensive to publish this. And so they must not have been able to take the heat and so they just quietly pulled it down. But mm -hmm. another I I DM'd this to a poet friend and I was like, finally, like a fun scandal. And the poet wrote back and said, who is Gia Tolentino? <laughs> <laughs> so it really is like this, you know, it's just these tiny niche audiences um, getting excited over what is, who's the main character of the day. Yeah, that's such a flex. Who is Gia Tolentino? I'm, <laughs> I'm going to just break that out at a party. Someone's going to mention her. And I'm going to be like, I'm sorry, who? Yeah. Um, yeah, I will I will never be able to pull that off. Not least because I've talked about her at length on <laughs> several different podcast episodes, but I digress. So do we, what is the, the sort of steel man argument for this poem being harmful? And so something that I want to talk about is this idea of, of creating something because you're coming from a place of sort of lustful fandom. Um, the thing that this poem instantly reminded me of, although it's a little bit of a deep cut and not in the same medium, is this song by Bree Sharp called David Duchovny, Why Won't You Love Me? And it was- <laughs> It has like, some good rhyme in it. Oh, it's excellent. I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and drop some of that in here. Marvel, to discover me. I got it bad for David Duchovny, David Duchovny, why won't you love me, why won't you love me? You know, it not only was this just kind of like an open expression of desire for David Duchovny, who was not a particularly big deal at the time. He was the X-Files leading man and that was it. So he was a sort of, you know, like he was just a, a TV actor on this one show. Um... But it was considered very charming that she'd written this and kind of relatable. And um, it resulted, I mean, it went it went sort of viral. Um, I think she wrote it in like 2001. And not only did Duchovny end up finding it, you know, somebody made him aware of it and he said that he thought it was great and he sort of promoted it. And then it ended up launching her entire career as like an, an indie musician. And I think she's done relatively well for herself. So... And, you know, it, it seems to me that it's the sort of the crucial difference is not that it was a different medium or a different time, but that it was a woman doing this yes. instead of a man. Yeah. So it's 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 a conversation you and Phoebe have had many times before, but, which is about, you know, which direction is the desire going in and, and conversations we have about power. Like, is it is, is it okay for a, a – I'm assuming she was younger than David Duchovny. Like, it's a younger woman writing about lusting for an older man. 
versus mm-hmm. here it's not only about gender but it's about race too because i'm assuming nicholas is white he looks white from his photo gia's filipino he talks about his wonder bread face and her hand there is something racial in here um that it's an older white man lusting for a younger filipino woman it just feels ickier than than the than the brie and david Duchovny example yeah. Also, this man's face really doesn't look anything like Wonder Bread unless the Wonder Bread had been left out for a long time and was growing like a sort of a stubbly, um, you know, extra appendage uh, because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's some there's some beard going on here that, you know, I, I just I don't know. I, I dislike the metaphor. I think he should have chosen a different one. Porcupine face. <laughs> Al- my albino porcupine face. There. I've improved the poem. <laughs> Thank you. There's something about like reading this, you just cringe for him. You cringe for him that this is in public where the song is like charming and quirky. Yeah. And I mean, is that about the medium or is it about the identity of the person doing it? Is has it I mean, this is this is such a classic thing, you know, for an older male writer to lust after the sort of nubile young muse. But have we reached the point where that's so not done or so not admitted to that it's actually embarrassing. This is now cringe. Yeah. Well, I think they're not just in poetry, but in the literary landscape, it's it's impossible to write about any kind of writing anymore without talking about the identity of the author. Mm-hmm. We're obsessed. Um, so it's like we can't even read anything without skipping ahead to the bio and the photo because it, it now informs how we read everything. But yeah, you're totally right. I mean, it's like this is this is a long, <laughs> a long history in 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 poetic uh, subject matter. The you know, gather ye rosebuds while ye may is about you know, <laughs> getting getting those ladies <laughs> while you can. You know, um, getting those young maidens. So this is this is I guess this follows in that tradition. But in in 2021, it's it's embarrassing and cringe. That's interesting. I'm trying to think, is there any poet who could write this poem specifically about Gia? Or does she occupy this very peculiar place in the landscape where no matter who is writing about her, it's perceived as punching down or doing something creepy? Is it possible to punch down on Gia Talentino? Like she's so she's so above us all, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, she's like she, you know on her on her pedestal. She's unreachable, which should make her fair game. But I guess that's where this sort of like aspirational proximity comes in. Everyone wants to position themselves as like so genuinely concerned about her because they are such good friends. Right. Right. And that's why the Lauren Euler piece caused such a sensation on the internet because no one wrote criticism of her book Trick Mirror until Lauren Euler did. And part of Lauren Euler's criticism was like, she's like the most popular girl. (laughs) She's like the most popular girl in school and everyone's afraid to say anything negative about her. Mm -hmm. Although what's funny is that Lauren Euler did that from the position of being like sort of the Daria figure who's, yeah, totally. you know, I mean, you know, she's like an archetype and an icon in and of herself. And that's why she was able to do what she did because she had sort of made a name for herself being the one who was willing to like to poke at the sacred cows. Right. So Kat, if someone wrote a lusty poem about Kat Rosenfield, would you welcome this? Um, would I welcome it? I guess it would mean <laughs> that I had achieved – a level of visibility in a part of the culture that I, I 
I find sort of unimaginable that anyone there would ever know or care who I was. So I guess this would say something about my level of like success Mm -hmm. professionally and broadly. Um, So I guess in that sense, I would welcome it. Um, I'm not sure that I would want to participate in a dialogue about it. And I don't think I would want to like read it. Um, especially, <laughs> especially if it was talking about things like if it, it was talking about eely wet and, and slippery things. Um, mm-hmm. But, you yeah. know, but even that, it's not even that it gets that sexually, you know, provocative or explicit, but I don't know. It just, it feels, it, it feels weird, but it's not, I don't think it's because it's, you know, it's so intrusive to Gia. It's because it's embarrassing for this guy. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a little bit like, you know, if you if you get a DM from somebody, you know, who you don't know, who's like, you know, who's like saying something confessional to you or like or he's sent you a he sent you an unsolicited picture. And, you know, not only is it unsolicited, but he's actually got like a weird dick. You know, (laughs) you're like, oh, you know, not not only did I not want to see that, but you really shouldn't be showing that to anybody. (laughs) Well, is I think some people were wondering, like, is this poem supposed to be funny? Like, is it supposed to be ironic? Is he making fun of his own lust? I think so. Um, I, think I mean, so. I can't, I can't imagine that this wasn't supposed to be like a somewhat self-deprecating poem. I, I find it impossible to imagine the the man so clueless that he saw this as like primarily about an expression of appreciation for Gia that she herself would appreciate or that people who like know and like her would appreciate. It seems more likely to me that he's, yeah, sort of self-mocking. What do you think? Yeah, I can I can imagine like him sharing this with someone and they're like, oh my God, I like dare you to submit this somewhere and see if they take it. Like as a, almost like as a prank. I can imagine that scenario. But I think it's too poorly written to be ironic. It's it doesn't do enough work to like wink at us that that he knows that we're in on the joke. It's like a, it's a little too sincere for me. Like the the pretentiousness of this stanza, twenty seven days in nickel freezing northern Michigan beneath those denuded tamaracks. Like that's such a that's such a poet move. That's not funny. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you know calling her out by name without really taking enough time to reference her position in the culture and like why he would relate to her in this way, why he would like seek her out to ask permission, um, you know, to whatever, whatever he's asking permission to do. He's asking permission for her to reside in his fantasies, but he's doing it in public. That's what's so creepy. It's like, I, so? what is, what does he actually want to do? <laughs> I want to ask Gia Talentino to ask me to ask her to ask me to let me take i mean this this is about informed consent cat this sounds like okay so i'm getting tripped up because you know how like there's anti-vaxxers and then there's anti-anti-vaxxers and then there's anti-anti-anti-vaxxers <laughs> by the time you reach the third anti i no longer remember who's for vaccination and who's against it like i can't really understand like there's too many sort of double and triple negatives going on and so yeah this asking i want to ask you so who is ultimately who does he want <laughs> to ask whom to do what? He wants her to ask him to ask her to let him take her hand. To ask, I want to ask her. 
to ask me to I I can't I'm I'm actually There's, not. It's redundant actually because he says the same thing twice. It's, it's breaking my brain. I can't <laughs> I can't like logic my way through this. He I can't. doesn't want to ask her to put her hand on his face because that would be like crossing a line. So he wants to ask her if she'll ask him to ask her to put his her hand on his face. Uh, we need, is, we yeah. need a third person in this equation, like somebody who like Gia could ask to ask him so that it's not just the two of them. I feel like that would actually make it less confusing for it to mm. be sort of more of a group effort. <laughs> so, you know, let's talk about this notion of a poem being so fraught or offensive or having run afoul of norms in such a way that it gets unpublished because this is not the first time even in recent memory that there's been a backlash in this same sort of literary like poetry twitter social justice left sphere where the two intersect Mm -hmm. um, that has resulted in a poem getting pulled anders carlson wee wrote this poem that was published in The Nation that uh, was written in sort of Ave, like um, African-American vernacular English, what Mm -hmm. we used to in the 90s refer to as Ebonics. Mm -hmm. And um, it was written by a white poet, which caused this huge controversy. And at first they appended this sort of warning, um, apologizing for the poem's ableist language and and saying that it was disparaging and so on. Um, but then I think, I believe they pulled it entirely, right? Right now I see it on the nation website and it's attached to an editor's note. So I think you can still read the poem in its original. All right. So I'm getting this confused. This one is written in the voice of, I guess, a black homeless person asking for handouts, but it was written by a white poet. So, okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm getting this confused with this other literary, uh, it was a piece of speculative fiction that was unpublished from a journal. Um, This one was uh, accused of being anti-trans, even though it had been written by a trans writer and it was called I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter um, and linked to an article about that in the show notes just so um, people can understand why I got tripped up and conflated these two things. It was an interesting year, I guess, what was it, like 2019 for... um, or an interesting moment um, for literary things to be the center of scandal. And then, yeah, the question keeps coming up, like who's allowed to draw from which vernacular. And in the case of the short story, you mentioned the author herself was trans, but she was called out on Twitter for using this offensive. um, I don't know if you would call it a trope. It's some kind of expression. Um, But this one was someone who wasn't from the, African-American community using that vernacular. It's so interesting because, I mean, this is what poetry is. I mean, poetry is language. That's all it is. That's the only thing you have to make your art out of is 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 words and language and, and um, putting them in a different order. It's like playing verbal Tetris. And so it's it's policing the boundaries of which which words you're allowed to use in which order. What do you think... I'm asking you to speculate on like, you know, what, what's the argument for unpublishing this poem? Was, was there an offense? Well, one thing I can say is I was the beginning of my poetry career. And I, and I find even the phrase poetry career or the phrase professional poet to be kind of hilarious um, because what does it mean? Um, But the beginning of my poetry career was like 2010 to 2000. 
I'm sorry, 2007 to 2010. And I'm just coming back to the poetry scene like over a decade later with my new book. And I've noticed how much it's changed or maybe it's I'm only noticing it for the first time. But the poetry community today is much more um, synonymous with social social justice activism than it was over a decade ago. So the two things now go hand in hand. It's very hard to separate them. Like when I go to a poetry reading, there's usually, you know, um, a message at the beginning about, um, you know, the Dapple protests or about um, Palestinian rights. So it's it's a very socially conscious community. And so that's why I think there's this hypersensitivity to offense because there isn't really a, a separation anymore between the activists and the poets. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be writing poetry, you know, back in those, those early days before uh, tum- Tumblr culture sort of saturated the internet. And now when you have this new book called what to miss when coming out um, this week. So, you know, you've, you've had a, a foot, in both worlds, you know, the the not so fraught world and the very fraught one that we exist in now. Um, what is that like to navigate, you know, as a as a person who's writing? Well, I think back in the before times, it was a time of like hipsterdom and vice news and irreverence and irony and humor. And I really thrived in that moment. Um, I wrote really funny, irreverent poems. Um I just wasn't, I mean, this was also like before I was woke. This was before I was really getting into social justice activism as a feminist organizer. So I wasn't, and this, <laughs> Obama was president. Like I just took a lot for granted. I was like, you know, I trusted in Obama. I wasn't really following the news very closely. I was ignorant of a lot of things. Um, and there, I didn't ever feel any pressure or any message that poetry had to be political. I was, I was totally ignorant of that. Um mm-hmm. And now it's it's a lot of what I hear. And I'm seeing the same thing. The same thing that fascinated me that I wrote my novel Self-Care about is kind of the way um, trauma and the worst thing that's ever happened to you can become part of your brand on Instagram and can become part of why people follow you for you to tell the same kind of confessional stories over and over again. I see that in the poetry world too. So that's an interesting intersection for me to watch. And confessional poetry like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton from the mid 20th century. That was my first love as a poet. It was like electrifying to me. Um, And that, you know, that was a kind of poetry where you assume that the speaker is the poet herself. You assume that she's writing about herself. And so that's, that was my first entry into poetry, but now it's like all poetry is confessional. Um, So that's also something too. So poetry has become at once political and extremely personal at the same time. And the expectation is that you somehow balance those in a way that's acceptable to your audience. So is the difference between contemporary poetry that's very confessional um, and the poetry of, for instance, Sylvia Plath that was also confessional, is the injection of politics? I think um, so. Is that what, that's the difference? I think so. I think that's what I I would say about contemporary poetry today. So you had, you know, it's, it's just occurred to me that your sort of step back from writing poetry coincided somewhat with your foray into and then sort of drawing back from like being super woke. Is that fair to say? Yeah, like I became an activist. Um, 
And you stopped being a poet. I stopped being a poet. And then I stopped being an activist and became a satirist. (laughs) And there's some poems in the book and in the poetry collection that are satire too. So I think I've become more of a a critic and a, uh, like a court jester. Interesting. So do you think that it's actually possible to be a good poet and to be extremely woke like in writing in that framework can you actually produce stuff that's quality <laughs> or maybe i should save this for the for the patrons only part of our no. episode is it too fraught no i i think there's such a thing as like like really good political poetry like i think that exists like i really admired um the amanda gorman inauguration poem like i think that was like a political poem that spoke to the moment uh it had gravitas um so i think that's possible and i have nothing against political poetry what i what i'm skeptical of is this idea that like every single poem we write is political mhm mhm and is it so this intersection of the political and the personal and the poetic. Yes. Does that ever work? Is there somebody who you <laughs> recommend as doing good work or is it, you know, do you think it's just kind of broadly not great? Um, a book I really liked during the pandemic was this book by Jenny Zhang um, called My Baby First Birthday. And it's about immigration and class and it's kind of confessional, neo-confessional, but it's also really wild and weird. Like I feel like she's really playing with with what poetry can do. So there's definitely poets that I admire that are kind of, um, I think what I admire in a poet is someone who's, who's pushing back against, uh, against the rules. That's what I find interesting. Um, not people that are writing poems that are, that conform to the group think. And that's the same thing I feel on the internet. Like, oh, are you saying the same thing that everyone you follow is saying? Like, congratulations. So this might be a good moment to have you, read a poem of yours that's sort of about that this this pursuit of something on the internet to you know to prompt an emotional reaction um that you're sharing with everybody else um and it's it's less about the quest to be you know to be moved by art than it is about the quest to be outraged by something art or not that runs afoul of your sensibilities yes so i'm going to read this poem called tiger king um, that I think is perfect for our conversation about Gia Tolentino because it's about it's about the little blips on the internet that capture our attention for a day until we have something new to look at. So this was inspired by a piece in The New Yorker by the short story writer Lori Moore in this New Yorker issue that was about like different writers reflecting on their lockdown experience. And Lori Moore said, I sometimes find President Trump's voice reassuring, not what he says, not the actual words, and Twitter lit on fire for a day. So that's what this poem is about. This is the one where she described his voice as like he speaks the way that uh, an adult person speaks to a pet who they're trying to soothe. Ah, I remember that. Yeah. Okay. Take it away. Okay. The caged tigers are hungry for whatever you have. Walmart meat past its expiration date, a sickly calf, short story master Lori Moore. She was asking for it when she confessed his voice soothes her like she's his pet. The caged tigers don't care about your contributions to arts and letters, that you sit in a distinguished chair you built on the grounds of your personal exotic animal park. They just want to eat. It's been weeks since anyone threw a juicy thought crime into their pen. One of the older tigers, 
who's been too busy birthing cubs to keep up with her New Yorker subscription, might need a younger tiger to explain how we're starving for someone to blame for our broken systems. We'd cancel a baby if it gave us five seconds of relief. In one story, Lori Moore offers a cure for depression. Stop drinking, stop smoking, stop eating sugar, cut out caffeine. Do this for three days, she writes, then start everything back up again. Bam. Is that it? We're the hungry. Yeah, okay. we're the hungry tigers. <laughs> we're the hungry tigers, and we got the Gia Tolentino poem, you know, thrown into our thrown into our cage, and it kept us occupied for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Well, it's you know, obviously, Tiger King. In- it also evokes the thing that we all watched, or at least most of us, during the early days of the pandemic, this Netflix original series that followed, what's his name, Joe? Joe Exotic. Joe Exotic, um, who I believe is now in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, well, this is this is phenomenal. I, I think it's very exciting that you um, managed to channel your sort of lockdown feelings and the pandemic moment into an actual work of art, um, unlike some of us who only managed to pick up hobbies that we stuck with very briefly and then abandoned. So you you came out of this having made something. Well, I'm wondering now, like, am I the only poet writing poetry about internet bullshit about poetry? <laughs> It's like very meta, right? Because there's all these online controversies that people engage in. But am I the only poet writing poetry about the controversies? I, I wonder. Know. I mean, it's certainly a rich vein. And um, <laughs> I think a lot of people are going to kick themselves, you know, if they hadn't already been doing this, that they that they didn't start and they didn't jump on that. Right. Right. Maybe I'm starting a new trend. Mm-hmm. So would you say that the the way the culture evolved during the pandemic, when we were all sort of locked inside and, and yeah, you know, the only thing to do was sort of follow these various online cancellations like a spectator sport. They were literally all we had, that in Korean baseball, but that was on very early <laughs> in the morning. So, yeah, I mean, would you say that um, – you know, the way that the pandemic influenced the culture really gave you a lot to work with poetry-wise? Yeah. I mean, this is something I've written about with the girl bosses too. It's like if if we weren't all at home and I'm writing about a very specific pandemic experience like of a certain class of people that were just, you know, fortunate enough to work from home, to be able to order food in and to be able to just scroll the internet all day long. But would these cancellations have happened in a similar way if we weren't all there to watch and not only watch, but to participate because it is a very, it is a participatory sport. We can jump in the comment threads, whether, whether I'm a member of the wing or not, I can jump in the comments on Instagram and say, shame on you. Uh, did you, did you jump? To that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I just observed, I just observed the phenomenon, but, um, you know, even the like the fact that you heard of these poetry scandals, like you're not even a poet, but the fact that you heard about this poetry scandal in the nation, um, it, it just becomes a part of the larger culture if you're online all the time. 
But then the the people that are online all the time are, of course, people who work in the media. So then it trickles into columns in the major newspapers. So like my mom, you know, a baby boomer in the Midwest will read a column in the Chicago Tribune and she'll say, I heard about this thing. And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, that was on Twitter six days ago. Right. Um, so it's not so insular as people. Some people would like to think that it's extremely insular, but it actually trickles down in terms of the media, the media at large shrinking and getting more and more of their news directly from social media. Right. And in many cases, you know, in the form of stories that they themselves sort of created, we, I mean, we've all become sort of like the firefighter who is also an arsonist who's setting <laughs> fires that he can then put out. Right. Because these little controversies, it's like, are they a big story or, or are they just something that people tweeted about for 12 hours? Like, does that make a big story now? Is, does the bar keep getting lower and lower for what makes something newsworthy? Yeah. I mean, it seems like increasingly what is considered newsworthy is what the it's like what we what we who are like, you know, sort of in the media and who are writing about the culture, the stuff that we write about in our spare time, um, the stuff that's interesting to us. And it occurs to me that there's a connection here between, um, you know, the sort of current state of affairs and what Phoebe calls photogenic feminism, where, you know, the, the feminist issue du jour tends to be something that is a sort of, it, it aligns with the central preoccupations of this very like elite college educated, you know, somewhat privileged media class, which is mm -hmm. why, you know, you'll end up with like 15 stories in major outlets about Emily Ratajkowski's, um, you know, activist buying back of her own photograph um, and how this is like a strike against the patriarchy. But you don't ever really hear about the women who work in meatpacking plants who are subject to like kind of daily degradations or harassment because that's just not a photogenic story. Right. Yeah, I have a I have a friend who um this was a few years ago, but she told me she's she's like I she's like I'm no longer writing for women's magazines. She's like cuz every time she would pitch a story like that, they would be like, "Yeah, no one wants to read about that." Like they they couldn't publish that next to an ad for um Tiffany or Louis Vuitton. So she just got so sick of it. She just stopped writing for women's magazines. This is so interesting too cuz I was thinking it's like, you know, I write and talk a lot about writing. I write a newsletter for writers and what's happening to the personal essay market, for example, and what's happening with competition. And we should talk about this for poetry, too. I just think the competition is enormous. And it used to be with that writers were, of course, competing with other writers. That's still the same. But when I look at what's published in the cut now, it's like, oh, I'm competing to get a personal essay published in the cut against Emily Ratajkowski or against a former bachelorette. The personal essays are now being written by celebrities. And so there's just less and less space for professional writers to even share their work. It's very bizarre. Yes, especially since even when the essays are being written by celebrities, they too are still about trauma. Yes. That's how they get published. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that part of things, but we're going to, we're going to reserve it for, we're going to um, save it for the for, good people. For fem not, not for the good, <laughs> not for the good people, just for the ones who are paying for it. I don't That's care if I they're, mean. I don't care if they're good or not. So yeah. So Lee Stein, uh, your book, What to Miss When is on sale August 10th. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a brand new collection of pandemic poetry. It is witty. It is dark. Um, it is, dare I say, 
primed to be controversial in its own way, even if it doesn't <laughs> include any lustful poems about media figures. This is probably its one big failing, honestly. Thank you for joining the Feminine Chaos podcast in our inaugural solo me only edition. Um, it's a temporary state of affairs, which I'm sure everybody is extremely glad about, including me. But uh, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Kat. <laughs>